0: Hey everyone mike vogel here for break the ice uh we've, we've been on a little bit of a, a hiatus a pandemic hiatus if you will but we're back and happy to be joined by michael pecca recently hired by the capitals as a development coach um, to kind of help out with the, the taxi squad it's interesting situation here with uh the way the way things have played out with the nhl this year each team has this six player maximum six player group of kind of auxiliary players uh, Basically, an extension of the um, the AHL team, but you know these guys are in a little bit of limbo, so to speak, where they're not getting the development uh, that they would normally get with the American Hockey League uh, in, in playing games, and, but they are practicing every day. And I, I thought it was a fantastic idea to to bring Michael in to, to work with these guys. And um, Michael, first off, uh, thanks for joining us, and give us an idea of kind of how this this gig came about for you and and what the value is that you can provide to these guys um you know who are going through some things here that uh, certainly they didn't anticipate going through in their career yeah
1: yeah first of all thanks for having me on um so a lot of this came about um you know i've been in contact with uh peter uh you know laviolette over the course of you know, even uh, even a month or so before he was hired by the Capitals, just trying to figure out. Now, you know, the family life was in a good spot where the kids are older, so travel wouldn't be an issue. Just uh, you know, what he would recommend is the best way for me to kind of get my foot back in the game. And um, he had some great suggestions. Uh, you know, subsequently I had uh, some interviews with some different organizations that you know uh, came really close to things happening. But I think given the with all the COVID stuff, a lot of people just weren't hiring. You know, owners and teams are going to be losing uh some money this year so there wasn't a lot of outside hiring going on and you know and then uh probably going into the last uh two weeks of january uh pete just uh, reached out and asked me a bunch of questions that i think he wanted to provide the answers to maybe uh brian mcclellan the gm for the for the caps and um you know and i think uh, initially it was to come in and and help with uh uh, the taxi squad guys and lend a hand uh, with the centers on face-offs and things and Uh, So that's what I initially uh, came in expecting to do. And it's been great. I think um, first on the taxi squad guys, um, you know, I think these kids are in great shape and we try and do as much as we can in game simulation and skill development stuff. But, you know, making sure I'm in constant contact with them on a daily basis, making sure their head's in the right place. Um, Given how condensed the schedule is, you never know when your opportunity might come. And so I just tell them every day, you know, prepare like you're playing tomorrow, you know, don't 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 let it slide for one second, because if you get that one chance and, you know, you're not mentally ready to go, then, you know, you may not get that second opportunity. So, um, you know, I've been able to build a really good relationship with this group. It's a great group of guys. They they give it everything they got every single day. And uh, uh, it's been wonderful to, to be a part of a part of it.
0: And I think most of, if not all of them, uh, actually did see some game action with the Caps earlier this season when they were yeah. going through some, uh, a lot of lineup situations and lineup was in a state of flux. I got to think that that's going to be helpful to them um, as well. But systematically, um, I guess that's kind of important too to make sure that they're, um, if they do have to step in at the, at the drop of a dime, that that they're familiar, you know, inside and outside with you know, what's going to be expected of them, um, you know, in every game situation.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, obviously given the, the, the new environment we're in, um, you know, we, uh, uh we send out a lot of, uh, inter- our meetings, uh, special teams, meetings, game recap, meetings, system meetings, um, over huddles. So, you know, players have access to watch things on their phone or on their computer, on their laptop, uh, whatever way they, they, they choose. So, um, you know the, these guys got to be up to date you're you're absolutely right because uh, you know uh, as tight as the schedule is it seems that when we play some of these teams the games are equally tight and um, you know not being prepared can can cost you a goal against potentially and uh, in these games that can make all the difference
0: now when you when you learn that you would be joining the caps i'm guessing all of a sudden you kind of have to crash course familiarize yourself i'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the league and most guys, especially yourself, you, you were still involved in coaching. You were uh, coaching in the uh, Ontario Junior Hockey League, but I'm, I'm guessing you still kind of kept a, an eye out for for NHL uh, ongoing activities and whatnot and watched as many games as you could. But now all of a sudden, hired by the Washington Capitals, you probably um, took on a little bit of a crash course to familiarize yourself with personnel and such. How did that kind of unfold? And what sort of things were you looking for to? just jumpstart your, your knowledge of a, of a group of, you know, several dozen players organizationally.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think I was well prepared coming in, just having gone through some very extensive interview process with some organizations and doing some presentations for them. Um, I had to do a lot of research. Um, you know, Pete, Peter was actually helpful as long, along with uh, Brett Leonhardt, our, our video guy, um, in helping me prepare some video for some, some job interviews that I had. So I started to gain some familiarity Um, you know, for me, I wasn't as, uh, worried about getting up to speed on, you know, the players. I think if once you're in the game, as soon as you get into a locker room, you get on the ice with the players, those relationships build in in seconds, you know? So, um, that, that was the easy part. Um, you know, there's different lingo, there's some different, you know, tweaks to some system stuff, but as I got in day after day, I realized it's the same game. There wasn't a lot that really changed for the most part, big stuff. Um, and the only thing that I was kind of concerned about was going to be getting up to speed on the video stuff, you know, getting really familiar with the video stuff, and that too was a lot easier transition than I anticipated, um, which allowed me to do a lot more, uh, get a lot more stuff uh, together for sentiment. Um It's all, you know, even when coming in here, uh, you know, Pete said that, look, this is what the, the role is going to be titled. He goes, but I want, he's, he keeps giving me more and more responsibility, so now you know, post-game, I'm taking a period to alleviate, you know, Scott Arneal, who handles the penalty kill, and Blaine Forsythe, who does the power play, so they can focus a little bit more on special teams because schedule, you know, like I said, the schedule's so tight. So now alleviating their schedule, I'm cutting game video for systems and pre-scouts and meetings, so a little bit more responsibility all the time and uh, um, feel comfortable doing it. You're
0: almost, um, almost exactly a decade removed from your official retirement as a player um, during that period of time, what did you miss most about being around the game or what, what kind of drew you back in and was there a point during your 14 year playing career in the NHL where you thought that coaching was something that you wanted to, to be involved in post-career?
1: I, I always envisioned probably part, like halfway through, I think was a, a pretty, um, pretty safe timeframe that I could use that. I, I kind of knew I wanted to coach, um, You know, but, you know, at the end of my career, my son was, you know, he just turned nine and my daughter was, I think, turning five or something like that. And, you know, at the at the end of a five year deal I had with the Islanders, you know, and then getting traded and then a lockout year and then end of that contract signing, getting hurt, signing somewhere else. It was it was five cities in five years. And, you know, when I retired at the end of the 0809 season with the Columbus Blue Jackets, I didn't do it because I couldn't play anymore or I didn't want to play anymore. Um, I did it just because the family uh, needed some stability more than I needed to play hockey anymore. And, um, you know, and for me, I got involved in youth hockey right away and junior hockey right away. And um, that kind of fed the the, the hockey craving mm-hmm. uh, to some extent. I never once missed playing uh, since I retired. Um, and I was offered an opportunity to start being assistant coach with the Columbus Ju- uh, Blue Jackets right away. But, you um, you know, my reason to step away from the game had nothing to do with um, not wanting to be a part of it. I just, you, the family need a little bit more stability with my son. And, um, you know, I could see some insecurities starting to develop in him making new friends year after year. It after was difficult. So, um, you know, but I joke now, like even, even in some of the uh, interviews that I had, when people are like, you know, you've been out of the game so long, you think you're able to come step in. And I, 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 t- I tell them I'm more prepared to coach now than I was 11 years ago. You know, I know, how to blend, you know, how to run a band, like all the all the little nuances of coaching. Obviously, at this level, it is completely different. Um, but I, you know, youth hockey was a tremendous passion. I once my son got involved in Buffalo. I want to be a big part of the growth of youth hockey in Buffalo because you ask any guy in the National Hockey League, you know, they'll reflect back to the, their youth hockey days as probably the greatest influence on them and the coaches and the people they met that got them to where they are today. It's that organic falling in love with the game and I always knew that as much as partly through my career I knew I wanted to coach in the National Hockey League I also knew the whole time that I wanted to get back to the game at the same time and um, I feel very fortunate that I was able to spend uh, those years doing that.
0: Which uh, which coaches that you had over the years at whatever level because you had some real uh, heavyweights, real illustrious coaches and a couple of the guys that coached you real early in your career are still active in the NHL just wondering which of those guys do you feel like had the biggest influence on you and you can maybe still hear echoes of things that they said in your head over all these years
1: well I mean the, the coaches that impacts on me started when I was nine years old Keith Armstrong who's an older gentleman um really I think set my um my attitude straight at a young age I was a very prolific goal scorer at a young age and um, probably was a little bit too boastful at times. And, um, you know, I remember distinctly whenever I speak in events, I always tell this story because I think it's important for people to understand and what's important for the kids is, is just, so I had scored what ended up being my hundredth goal of the season, nine years old, big deal for me. And I was, and I think I was, must've been telling teammates what had just taken place from my perspective. And Keith Armstrong, our coach kind of walked down the end of the bench and pulled me aside. He goes, what are you, what are you doing? I said, I was just telling well that's the point Michael he goes when you do something uh when you do something bad you say little when you do something good you say less so he's a because I think that allows you to learn um, and open yourself up to learning um but then of course going into junior hockey Brian Kilroy Hall of Famer um had a tremendous impact on me and you know to the point you made I mean I was so fortunate I had Pat Quinn then it was Ted Nolan then it was Lindy Ruff Peter Laviolette, Paul Maurice, Ken Hitchcock. I mean, I, every single one of those coaches had an impact on me and some for in different ways. Um, there were some I look at and say, man, what he does there is absolutely perfect. I, I would do the same thing. And, and in some cases, I would do things completely different. But with all the coaches that I had to be able to take the best of all of them and try and put it together, um, and even that may not be the perfect coach for some people, but for me in my mind, um, I was very blessed to have some great, great teachers and mentors.
0: How um, invigorating do you find it just to be invested in the day in and day out fortunes of of a team, you know, the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys, the, the travel, the, the camaraderie, all that kind of stuff. Because I, I think that, you know, just from my own perspective during the pandemic, that that's kind of the the stuff that I miss the most, just walking into a rink, you know, morning skate. Um, How's this day going to unfold? All that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. It's certainly being a part of a locker room and being in the coaches meetings and just being on the inside. And um, it's, it's great. I mean, it just, it feels really good to be back in the game in that, in that way, Um, you know, to kind of offer your input and, you know, pulling players aside and having conversations about what you see and, um, I mean, it's being on the ice in practice and, you know, mingling with the guys and, and it, it's, it's, it's special. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a treat and an honor to be able to do that, I think on a daily basis. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot.
0: Let's uh, let's take a little look back now at your, uh, your playing career. Um, you, you obviously, uh, I mean, you played in the Ontario league as a 16 year old in Sudbury and I, I'm wondering what that experience was like at that young of an age. Cause for me, throughout your career, you were always one of those guys who played bigger than his size. And, um, I think that typically those, those kind of guys, um, have shorter careers and, and, you know, I know that injuries were a little bit nagging for you as your career wore on. Um, but I think the game was a lot different then, too. I think you actually, the kind of player you were, the speed and the skating ability that you had, um, if you were coming up now, I think you, you'd probably had an even better career than, than the one you had, which was pretty fantastic uh, from my standpoint. But I'm just wondering, what what was it like playing in the Ontario League as a 16-year-old, I mean, almost 30 years ago or 30 years ago?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I was, I was pretty mature as a kid, middle child, you know, typical middle child kind of raised myself sort of thing at times, Mm -hmm. but uh, I was ready for something bigger than youth hockey um, coming out of my, my minor midget year. Um, But it was, it was, it was interesting how I ended up in the Ontario hockey league. I had, I had narrowed down. I wanted to play college hockey more than anything. Um, You know, my family, we, we didn't have a lot of money. um, So I knew I still had an idea. I, I wanted to play hockey. Of course, I want to play in the NHL. What kid at, you know, nine to 15 years old? That's that's pretty good. Doesn't want to do that. Um, but I also loved doing other things. I loved, you know, law and I loved architecture and I loved a lot of different things. So, for me, I was wanting to use hockey to, to go to school and I narrowed it down to two schools and, um, you know. But then I interviewed with some teams the night before the uh, the OHL draft that year and. You know they're like okay well you know we'll, we'll, we'll pay four years of university if you know if you sign a contract obviously you're done but if you got hurt your your university's covered and I said okay that works for me and um you know but I was very forced I went to a great organization a 16 year old with Sudbury Wolves and you know Sam McMaster put me with a great family um you know so I think that that does a lot for a young kid you know when you're with a very uh loving mature family that uh you know, make sure that you're, you're taken care of, uh, it, you know, it's, it was different for me. I mean, like I said, I was ready to ready for it and I was prepared for it, but it's, uh, it's still a, a pretty interesting experience as a 16 year old, all of a sudden you don't see your family, uh, for periods of time, but you know, God bless my father. He made every single game. He from Toronto, he drove to the Sioux, he drove to Ottawa. He came to every home game. I don't know how he did it. And then he never stayed. He'd drive home right away. Um, it was incredible. So at least that, uh, that helped a little bit.
0: Man, that's remarkable. Um, And, and, you know, trades are part of the game. Guys get moved. uh, But what's that like when you're you're traded as a teenager in junior hockey and you move on to uh, to Ottawa? And like you said, Brian Kilroy. You
1: know, it's funny. So I had this conversation with somebody just the other day regarding my junior trade and you know, like I was in Sudbury for a year and a half. I could traded the deadline my second year. And then literally two weeks into my time in Ottawa, I felt like I'd been in Ottawa for the last year and a half. Like, it's just wow. not that I forgot what happened in Sudbury stuff, but I just felt like I just got so invested. Like I, so I was able to just sever what happened in Sudbury, um, invested everything I had into Ottawa. And it was, just, I just felt like I'd been there forever. Um, you know, the difference, the different thing for me going to Ottawa, um, you know, under Brian Kilray was, I was a winger my whole life. I played right wing my whole way growing up. I played, I was playing left wing in Sudbury, uh, that year, uh, before I got traded. And as soon as I got to Ottawa, Brian Kilray said, you're going to be a centerman and that's what you're going to be. And I became a centerman, you know, at 18 years old or 17 and a half years old. And, you know, that was my NHL draft year. I got drafted as a centerman, having played only I think two and a half months as a centerman. So, um, I, I, I liked it. You know, I mean, he was a, he was a great mentor. You know, he played the game for a long time, very old school mentality, um, but really did a good job of teaching me a lot about the responsibilities of the position.
0: Did he ever tell you what he saw in you that that made made him think that that was your, that was your spot?
1: Well, I think he just, he saw a lot of Doug Gilmore in me at the time, you know, gritty, um, yeah. you know, real smart. I was, I was a real good passer and saw the ice real well. And he just felt that I would, uh, I would be better served as a center not just being confined to the wall and being able to get all the way around the ice. And I, uh, you know, I always prided myself on being a 200 foot hockey player. Um, Want to be out there in every single situation. And uh, I think being moved to the center allowed me to a little bit more freedom to, to do a lot of that.
0: Well, and you were, like you said, drafted 40th overall by um, Vancouver, I think it was 1992 and uh, had a pretty good um, playoff that year as well that, that probably uh, opened some eyes. But then you, you go to uh, Vancouver and um, you got a little taste of uh, right away that that team was, was pretty, pretty loaded. And 93, 94, they were in the cup finals against New York Rangers. I'm guessing you were uh, part of a black aces experience that year and you were probably 19 or so then what was, what was that like to, to walk into that situation?
1: Well, that was incredible. So the difference, so, you know, I, I share a lot of that story with the taxi squad guys when I first met them, that, you know, look, I was on a, you know, a two month run with the Vancouver Canucks and was part of this, you know, I mean, the difference is, is we practice with the team every day and, you know, we kill, you know, we do some different things to help them out. So, um, but for me at that age to just kind of, you know, I remember getting the phone call in Ottawa from, from, uh, I think it was the scout in our area saying, Hey, listen, um, I think in the first round they had a game against Calgary and they said, if they win this game, you got to get on a plane first thing in the morning. And I was out, you know, at a sports bar with, you know, some teammates and I think Jeff Cortnall scored in overtime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I, I got up, I walked right out cause I knew it had a six o'clock late the next morning. Um, but it was an incredible experience. You know, I think early in the, in my career. And so that was kind of the, the precursor to my rookie year. Vancouver not only had a very talented deep team, they were, they had a plethora of just wonderful, you know, veteran players that for me, um, wow, did that have an impact on me from Dave Babbage to Dana Merzin and, you know, Trevor Linden and just so it goes on and on and on the guys that were there, but to be on the inside in that playoff run and just watch the the preparation and being a part of all the meetings and, you know, it just, it, it shows you what the playoffs were all about. I mean, being a kid growing up and watching the playoffs uh, was an incredible thing. And even it was funny, I was drafted in 92 by Vancouver during the 93 playoffs. I was still a Leafs fan. You know, I remember being downtown Toronto, you know, Leafs, you know, I can't believe they, they lost to LA in the conference final, all that different stuff. So now all of a sudden I'm a, I'm a Canuck, like I'm a Canuck. So I had to sever all the Toronto stuff. And sure enough in the conference final, we're in Toronto, I'm in Maple Leaf gardens and, I'm like, okay, this is, this is crazy stuff. You know, I was watching them play LA here the year before. Um, so it was just, it was just a wonderful experience. I mean, even to wrap the whole thing up, you know, they actually had me speak at BC place with everybody else about the experience. Like I wasn't even really part of the team, um, but they had a parade and they had this whole thing at BC place and I had to get up there and figure out what the heck I was going to say. And it was just a thank you for obviously for the experience, but, uh, um, I think it gave me a lot of confidence coming into training camp the next year despite the lockout uh, for half a year um, it gave me a tremendous amount of confidence going into my first pro season
0: well and then, yeah that leads me right into the next question because like you say there's a there's a lockout there at the, at the start of there's training camp and then once once camp's over all of a sudden everything's locked out and it, and it stayed that way till mid-january similar to, to you know what happened in 12-13 as well but Um, So you go to Hamilton and play in the American hockey league, which under normal circumstances, you, you would have been too young to do. Um, And again, you're a teenager playing in that league and you're still a point a game guy. And, and I think 70 some PIMS in 30 games either, or 35 games or whatever. So you weren't a wallflower either. What was that experience like for you?
1: Well, it was an interesting scenario because I think I kind of, I knew that I was only going to be down there during the lockout. And that's part of the, maybe some immaturity I had in my approach to going um, to the American hockey league. Um, so I, I mean, I had, I think I was a point of game after 34 or 35 games, but I think I only had like two or three points after like 14 games or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember like the head coach was Jack McElhargy, Kurt Fraser was the assistant coach and they are up and down on me. And I just, being part, so I was, I was mentally ready for pro hockey, but at the day ins and day outs, I had to learn how to eat properly and do different things and get my sleep and do all this stuff. Um, and then all of a sudden I just, I caught fire and, you know, uh, I remember the night in Adirondack, I think I had two goals in Adirondack. And then after the game, uh, you know, Mac Elhargy told me, Hey, listen, you know, thanks for everything, uh, lockouts over, you're going up to Vancouver. Um, but I, but I remember the whole scenario, like even that season during training camp, like I, I was, I may have just turned 20. I, I don't even know if I turned 20 yet. And, you know, I'm in training camp and I'm preseason, I'm running guys, veterans and everybody. And they're all like, Hey kid, relax. We're not going to have a season. You know, you're not trying to make a team right now. And I, and I, I you know, it just, it, it didn't dawn on me that that was going to actually happen. I was just trying to prepare. Um, and I remember doing a media interview and somebody saying, Hey, look, you know, it's your centerman. They've got uh, Trevor Linden and Cliff Ronning and, uh, Nathan Lafayette and they've got uh, uh, McIntyre. So they, they go, they've got four centers. He goes, where do you see yourself uh, fitting in here? I said, you know, it's not about the spot that's there. I go, I, I, I will create a spot. I said, I will make them put me on this team. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I mean, I had a good stint in, in in Syracuse, but unfortunately Nathan Lafayette blew his knee out pretty bad. And um, you know, the, you know, the opportunity presented itself for me.
0: Well, and, and like I said earlier, you were a guy who always played bigger than your size. And you mentioned Dougie Gilmore and being a Leafs fan. Was he a guy that you looked up to as you were growing up uh, or patterned or modeled yourself after? Was there anyone else besides him?
1: No, I mean, I admired the heck out of out of Dougie. Um, but, you know, if my my original player that I started to emulate myself uh, was Steve Eiserman, you know, when I was a, coming up through minor midget. I mean, I played for the Toronto Red Wings. I had the Red Wing Jersey number 19. I was the captain. So in my mind, I was Steve Iserman, you know, so, um, but then, you know, as I got a little bit older and into junior and I realized how important playing 200 feet and all this stuff. And, you know, I kind of started to look at Jeremy Roenick who, you know, was kind of a 200 foot player, had an edge to his game with steamroll guys. Um, and, you know, and then, so and then I just try to blend the two together a little bit, you know, but, um, you know, I think when I came into the NHL and then got traded from Vancouver to Buffalo, you know, it's just, you know, Ted Nolan put me in a position where, you know, that I remember one night he says, look, we're playing Colorado. He goes, and you're going to be playing against Peter Forsberg all night and I don't want them to score. And I said, okay, um, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> it is Peter Forsberg. Um, and our line was really good. I think we had two goals on the game, our line. And that's kind of what started this whole and not that I regressed into just a defensive shell. I mean, it, I, I just I just understood and appreciated the role that I played in our line played uh, in the success of our hockey team. And, you know, early on in Buffalo, you know, to jump ahead a little bit, I think that's why our teams were so successful from the mid to late 90s um, is we just we had every guy that bought in and played a role and put the team first and. I I didn't care how many goals or assists I had. Really, it was you know I was doing my job and um, our our line was doing our job and we did it well and it helped um, a tremendous amount to the success for our hockey team.
0: I mean, yeah, to your point, the year you guys uh, were in the Cup final against Dallas, your two leading scorers were both defensemen. Yeah, it was Wooly and Jitnik, and then you and Curtis Brown were were behind them. That, that was, and obviously, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but. Um, I, I think you're exactly right about those, those Buffalo teams were committee type teams. There were, you know, you had Sh- Miroslav Mer- Shetan was, was a, you know, a bit of a stud, but beyond that, there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, high end talent. You guys were yeah. just a bunch of lunch bucket guys that were, you know, just real hard to play against. But, but what was it like to, uh, you know, you well, let me go back. You, you mentioned, you know, running guys and trying to make an impact, which I think, you know, is kind of common for guys who are a little, smaller than especially back then when the game was a little more rugged and there, it was, it was a different game then for sure. But uh, I I don't know, it was nine, 10, 12 games into your NHL career. You got hurt pretty bad. Uh, the cheekbone um, trying to lay a hit on Timo Solani, if I remember right. What, yep. what do you remember about that? How that all played out and your, your mindset while you're recovering from that?
1: So, yeah. So, I mean, it was, uh, it was a home game against Winnipeg and uh, I caught Timo Solani coming, through center ice and you know it was probably a second late than then should have been I ended up getting a minor penalty for interference but you know it knocked Timo Solani out um here's a guy who's coming off you know obviously an incredible season or two and um you know a a, a crap storm started immediately thereafter I think there was nine fights in the rest of that game I had to leave um I think Winnipeg probably thought I was chickening out and I was leaving Um, But I did, I fractured uh, my right orbital bone. Um, Fortunately, the x-rays, it wasn't displaced, so I didn't need surgery. So that was a good thing. So I think I ended up missing like four weeks or so. Um, And then after coming back, I think my second game uh, was against Winnipeg in Winnipeg. Um, And I I tell this story a lot. It it was kind of put me at the precipice of what type of person, not just player, but what type of person I was going to be in my career. Um, you know we're sitting in the locker room and the radio we're listening to just a rock station and they just the djs keep talking about how they've got to come to the game fans got to come to the game because i'm going to get killed and the the winnipeg jets are going to kill me for what i did to team of solani and and nobody's saying hey kid don't worry about it we got your back i think they were just enjoying watching me like look at the radio every time the dj said something different um and then my first shift was a face-off to the left of you know, the Winnipeg goalie, um, I'm, I can't remember who their goalie was. And I hop over the boards. It was a whistle. Um, so my line mates were Tim Hunter and God, um, I can't remember who my left winger was. Could have been Sergio Meso or um, McIntyre and then Gerald Diddick. And uh, I can't remember who the lefty was. So anyways, it was some guys that could handle themselves, basically. Is yeah. What I'm Um, And then I, out of curiosity, I look over to see who Winnipeg was throwing over the bench and it was Ty Domi and Chris King and Stefan Quintel and Dave Manson. I'm like, oh my God. Um, You know, it's like uh, walking through the, you know, penitentiary almost. And then Dallas Drake comes over to take the face off. And, you know, sure enough, uh, puck comes around the way the play happened. And I just catch Dallas Drake and in the middle of the ice and he kind of like, he's in the air for like 20 feet from the blue line to the red line. And the, you know, the crap storm started again and I got jumped by like two or three guys and, you know, but I stood my ground. I didn't back down. And the rest of that game, nobody even said anything to me. They didn't come at me again. They didn't do anything. And, um, I think it just kind of set the the groundwork for me and my career, and maybe reputation that look, I'm going to play, I'm going to stand up and nothing's going to derail me from, from what I'm going to do. And, um, it was a it was a scary scenario to start with for sure.
0: Yeah, that's a lot to chew on for a guy uh, as young as you were at yeah. the time, for sure. Um yeah, I'm glad you had Tim Hunter riding shotgun for but sure. But it's the same that's...
1: it's the same 19 year old, or actually when I was eighteen year old, my first preseason game in my first camp, I ran Wayne Gretzky at a preseason game in Portland, Oregon. So maybe I had maybe I had it coming.
0: <laughs> a little bit of a death wish there. Um, so at the end of that season, you wind up uh, getting moved to uh, to Buffalo, which you know brings it closer to home for sure. But man, Vancouver for my money, one of the most beautiful cities in North America. Um, and, and I think it was you and uh, Mike Wilson and a first for um, for Alexander Mogilny, who at the time was a you know a superstar. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people initially thought that um, that trade was a steal for the Canucks, but it wound up being. Pretty much the other way around that that was the that was a trade that really helped build that buffalo team the the last half of the 90s and and um like you said with with ted nolan and then later lindy ruff um those teams were and and Dominic Kosick was obviously a a huge part of that as well but those teams were tough and and um you know i remember the caps playing you guys in the uh conference finals 1998, which was a, a pretty fun series. And it was the first time the Caps ever went to the uh, Cup Finals, was that Game Six in overtime. Um, it was the Joe Juno goal. But um, I think you were playing with um, Vaslav Varada and Michael Groschik um, in those days. What was that, uh, that whole? Because to me, that, that that's sort of what put you on the map as the premier checking line center. Like you said, a guy who could play on, on both special teams would routinely lead the league or be among lead, lead league leaders in shorthanded goals. But you know, every situation, and then all of a sudden you're, you're getting sulky consideration, year in and year out, you win it a couple of times, you're a finalist, you're top five, like five, six, seven years in a row. Um, your prime years were, were, were pretty studly.
1: No, thank you. Yeah. And, and the it's funny thing is, is I, 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 I was aware, well aware of what the Selkie trophy was, but never really thought that it was anything that um, I would try to achieve or attain or even would be in the uh, consideration for. Um, Cause it seemed like an award where, you know, Steve Eisman got it with a hundred something points. Fedorov got it with a 90 something points. Doug Gilmore got it with a It's almost like we're going to give the highest scoring guy that's pretty good defensively the Selkie for, for a little while. Um, not the only reason I didn't think that I just, I just didn't think that way. Um, but at the, in the 96-97 season, or I think it was, um, I remember I, I'd been on a stretch, or maybe it was a 97-98 season, I was just on a stretch where um, I hadn't been scored against five-on-five five for like 27 or 28 games, our line, um, and I was plus, plus a bunch, and I think it was a 20-goal year, and I just remember being in the hallway with Gary Galley, um, and there was a national reporter, he's a local reporter for the Islanders and Rangers, um, but also does a lot of national stuff, and and I remember it's the first time I ever heard my name attached. With uh, Gary Gally. I was like, "Hey," because I think he was one of the professional sports writers who votes on it. He goes, "Hey, this this guy, Pekka should be should be a Selkie Trophy winner this year or something like that." i my like, "Ha!" You know, and I just kind of went on with it. Um, you know, so we finished off the season pretty good, and lo and behold, it, it kind of came to fruition, and um, and it was it was it was amazing. But but you're right. I mean, the anybody that wins awards like that, it's it has so much. Um, to do as well with the line mates you play with and the defenseman. You know, we talk about that trade. Jay McKee was often on the ice with us, who was the first-round pick in the McGillney yeah. trade that Buffalo got um, in a lot of those defensive situations. So, um, you know, it's it's always a group effort. It's uh, flattering at times to get the majority of the recognition. But, you know, if, if there's anything I did to help our, our line more than anything was maybe set the tone and, um, and make sure everybody was on their toes. But uh, we all put in the equal amount of work.
0: I got to ask you too about the 1999 Cup final and how that the, the the kind of debacle, the way that that overtime of Game Six unfolded, and and you know what were your thoughts as as that was happening in real time, and what are they now with the benefit of 20 plus years of hindsight, how that whole thing unfolded with Brett Hulls game winner in in those days where you could not have the toe in the paint.
1: Right. And, and, and the interesting thing is, is I played with players after that who were in, you know, not with Dallas or Buffalo, but were with other teams throughout that playoff series who were on teams. Like for example, Ethan Morrow was playing for Chicago, I believe. And he had mentioned a goal where Tony Monte was on a breakaway and did his patented move where he pulled the puck back, but his feet slid into the crease. Didn't interfere with the goalie and put the puck in the net and it was disallowed um, you know nobody got a memo in March about you know if the player has control of the puck or maintains control of the puck that it, it's okay every single goal the protocol was every single goal had to be okay the problem was and changed the rule the following year is the NHL had control of the Zamboni doors they wanted to capture the Hollywood yeah. moment which understandably you want to get I mean that's every video package for you know, the playoffs the following season is going to be those moments that they capture. Um, but in doing so, it broke the protocol of Bill McCreary, who was a ref, getting the OK of the goal. Because the guys upstairs, and I had friends that were up in the press box, none of the video guys were even at their their monitors. They were all over the railing, looking at the um You know, unfortunately, we we're on the wrong side of, uh, you know, a rule change. <laughs> but. You know, um, you know, hopefully things like that don't happen again. But it was it was it was tough to handle, there's um, no it, doubt about
0: it. You mentioned uh, your your years in Buffalo, uh, some of the some of the things like, like being uh, t- t- going 20 some games without being scored upon. Those kind of stats weren't readily available to the rest of us in those days in the media. Yeah. Um but those are the kind of things that at contract time are pretty damn valuable for a guy who's looking to get what he was worth. And I know you had a couple, I mean, you sat out a whole year over a contract uh, dispute and there were, that wasn't the first contract dispute that cost you 10 or 11, 12 games. I remember there was another year where um, you missed the beginning of the season. What was that like for you and, and your representation to try to get fair value in those days before there was a salary cap and when different markets looked at things differently you know maybe if you were playing for the Rangers you would have, you wouldn't have had the, the problem getting your due in those days
1: no yeah so yeah so after I won my first Selkie I'd missed some time the, the following season um, a few games but I think a lot of that was due to I had I had arthroscopic shoulder surgery so they may have felt that time was on their side and they kind of dragged it out a little bit, um, but after the '99 uh, season, '99 2000 season, um, you know, it uh, it it became for me more a matter of principle than anything. Um, you know, obviously, you want to get fair value. You want the intangibles and in everything you bring to the team um, to be valued. It, I didn't believe it was, um, and there were so many things behind the scenes that I had been made aware of. Um, from the owner by the ownership and you know they had controlled uh empire sports which had a 24-hour radio station and a tv station there and it was i mean it's it was like living in dc i guess to just listen to this you know this political crap going all over and um and a lot of it was just untrue and so for me um it made me dig my heels in out of a matter of principle not financial Um, i think we could have easily come to uh, a resolution for that um, but I just remember calling Darcy Regears saying, I will never play for this organization ever again. Um, I will not put this Jersey on and it felt bad because we had a good team and there's a lot that we can do. And, you know, he asked if we can meet the next day and he flew in from, uh, I think he had a scouting meetings out West somewhere. Um, and he goes, look, here's what we can do. I said, look, I said, if there's any saving this, you know, you can go ahead and call, you know, Donnie Meehan, who's my agent. And. If there's something he feels is can make me change my mind, then we'll do that. But he never called him and the season went on. And, you know, that that season in itself was difficult at the start. You know, I I just think, again, I think one of my greatest assets, um, not just in the sport, but in life is just my ability to just focus. So for me, it was just every day I got a new routine and I I made sure I was in great shape. Uh, I made sure I was ready to play you never know what could happen and you know i got the opportunity to play in the spangler cup with team canada over christmas holiday and then i got to play in the world championships and captain team canada in the world championships um you know i think the team got a scare because i needed shoulder surgery and my shoulder kept coming in and out and they're a little bit worried about it and then i end up smashing the left side of my face in a game against russia so i needed emergency surgery so i flew back um but i got to do some great things and i also believe everything happens for a reason Uh, i missed a year in my peak of my career, um, a monetary loss that you can never get back. But at it, it, the end, it didn't bother me. Um, I got to play with Team Canada, and because of, you know, I played an entire game with the fractured cheekbone, a shattered cheekbone. Um, the doctor on our team at the time thought I just banged my face. I kind of knew I had I had a issue because I we talked about the Vancouver year. I fractured the right side, and this one was way worse. Um, and then just right near the end of the game, um, I went to blow my nose and my eyeball almost came out. And that's when we rushed to the hospital. Um, funny thing is, is I wasn't there. I ended up getting player of the game. I had a goal and I think an assist against Russia. And I wasn't there to get my nice watch. But, um, but I think what it did for me to wrap it all up is, um, you know, it got me a tryout for the Olympic team, for the O2 Olympic team that fall. Um, you know, and it was you know, I think uh, they I got a lot of respect from them in that. And, and actually, I think Pat Quinn told the story um, when we all gathered at one point. And, you know, I, I think just having played in that and just having been mentally uh, focused on what I want to do, I was able to come out and have a career year the following year with the New York Islanders. So, um, you know, like I said, everything happens for a reason, you know, fast forward to 2021, where you know, I get traded the Islanders. Peter Laviolette's my coach. I get an opportunity to step in with a, a tremendous organization, a wonderful hockey team, and it's, it's my relationship with Peter that allows that to happen. So it's hard to look back at anything in my life and regret it. I, I, I don't think I regret anything in my life. So um, onward.
0: What would you say about Peter as far as Because I think that was his first year as a, a head coach in the NHL too, um, as far as how he's evolved from, from your standpoint. Um, over 20, 20 years where he's been pretty much, you know he's had a couple of gaps, but but pretty much continuously uh, running a bench in the NHL, which is a, a heck of an achievement, really. I, I,
1: just, I see a lot of the same, you know, I think uh, what I really liked about Peter and it was a breath of fresh air is his, his willingness to have good relationships with players. And what I mean by that is you know not being like, okay, I'm, I'm the coach, so I can't also be your friend mentality. Um, a lot of coaches I had coming up just they 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 felt like they need to create a separation, a power sort of thing, and the the assistant coaches would be the guys you can joke around with and stuff. Um, he was all about relationships. That's what makes him such a good coach. Is um, you know, and I think anytime you're a teacher or a coach, um, the players need to know that you're invested in the relationship with them. Uh, and that's how you get the most out of them. And uh, to a large extent, you know, I mean, some systematic things might change over the years and you grow in what you want to do and you change certain philosophies, but um, as a coach and the way he approaches the game, he seems very much the same to me. So it's no doubt. He's had a lot of success with it.
0: What did you do during the uh, the, the lockout year? Cause you had already, as you said, you'd already missed a year for, because of the contract dispute Um I don't remember you playing anywhere during that.
1: that, No, I didn't. I didn't play. Um, in hindsight, maybe I, it would have been nice to maybe get some hockey in. I mean, I just, I was led to believe right or wrong, um, that this wasn't going to just be one year. It could have trickled into possibly the next season. Um, so I really upped my golf game (laughs) and I went on golf trips and I golfed a lot. And, you know, so I enjoyed the lockout. Um, I mean, I worked out, I did a lot of things, but you know, I think where it caught up with me and and where it almost cost me was I ended up getting, after the lockout, I got traded to the Edmonton Oilers from the uh, New York Islanders and the first half of the season, or maybe just over half a season with the Edmonton Oilers was probably the worst hockey I'd ever played in my life. Um, I felt bad about it. Um, I knew what the issue was. Craig McTavish was extremely patient with me. Um, and then fortunately it was that Olympic year or that Olympic time, uh, during that 05, 05 06 season where, I mean, as the season was going on, I was getting in better shape, better shape, but then I really kicked into high gear. Kelly Buckberger, who was one of our, uh, player and development coaches, um, really, really worked hard with me. And the last third of the season and into the Stanley cup finals, uh, I went from playing the worst hockey in my career to maybe the best hockey in my career. Um, uh, so it's, uh it was strange, but I, in hindsight, like, so when I was going through that, um, I, it was probably, probably would have been a good idea. Um, if I had been playing somewhere
0: and that was your third trip to the cup final too. Um, you came so close, uh, you, a couple of game sevens and, and a game six that was, you know, um, disputed. W- what are your memories of that? Cause that, that, that was the first, uh, um, I mean, the, the, both of those teams, Edmonton and Carolina that year were, were you know, not really expected to go as, right. as they did. And it was a, it was a pretty exciting uh, grind, really, for, uh, for both of those teams to get there.
1: Yeah, I mean, for us particularly, I mean, we had, to play, we had to play phenomenal hockey for the last month or two just to make the playoffs. And I think the second last game of the season is where we secured our playoff spot. So by no means did we ever feel we're a lock to get in there. Um, but once we got in, we our mindset the whole time, and you hear a lot of stories, right? About the team that really has to work hard to get themselves in or in a better position going into the playoffs than maybe a team that's been sitting there, you know, they knew they'd been in. So maybe their their gears aren't quite as revved up. But once we got into the playoffs, we didn't think there was anybody that could beat us. We just, that's what we believed. We just seemed to be in this routine where we had four lines going, we had 60 going, both sides of the special team were spectacular. Dwayne Roloson had been playing incredibly well for us in that the coaching staff, obviously, you know, with Charlie Huddy, Craig Simpson, and Craig McTavish, just them alone, not to mention Kevin Lowe, who's our GM, the wealth of experience that they were able to lend all of us, not just in communication, but in video and how we were prepared for the Stanley Cup playoffs was incredible, um, you know, but it was, it was a tremendous run. But that, that Stanley Cup in particular, being in a game seven, With Buffalo, um, you know, it was game six and we were down three to two, so we couldn't win the cup that night. You know, taxi squad with the Vancouver Canucks, it was game seven. I didn't feel all that emotionally attached because I wasn't playing. So it was a different dynamic. Here I'm playing in the game and it's game seven, a chance to win. It hurt really bad. Um, And without exaggeration, I probably cried 400 or 500 of the next 600 days. Like it it was really tough to go through, but that's the game, man. It was, uh, it was a great ride and going through the handshake line. I, you know, of course I run into Peter Laviolette and I, and I told him, I said, I would, I couldn't be happier to lose, you know, to somebody where you're, you're, you're coaching the team. So, um, but that team, that team, we did achieve a lot coming from where we started the season.
0: And, and you finished up with, with Toronto and Columbus, but, uh, what, what was it like for you to pull up, uh, pull the, uh, the blue sweater over your, uh, your head and, and, and be a leaf for a brief period of time there.
1: It was great. It, it wasn't supposed to be so brief coming out of the fight, the, the Stanley cup with the Edmonton Oilers, you know, I, I mean, I had some options. I could have resigned with the Edmonton Oilers, um, which I, I actually loved playing there. It was just difficult being spoiled in the Eastern conference and the way the travel was. And then mm-hmm. being in Edmonton, it was just, it was tough. And I didn't think I wanted to go through that again. Um, you know, and I had some other really good options. And You know, in conversations with my agent, I said, "Well, why don't we try just doing a one-year deal that works for Toronto, with the expectation of signing the extension in January when the cap relief comes and stuff." And everything was on board, um, you know. But you know, unfortunately, that year I had a really bad tibia plateau fracture in my right leg, right, like December twenty-second or twenty-third. And you know, that kind of—I mean, the funny thing is—is I was supposed to be done for the year. I was back practicing full uh, middle of March. Um, end of March. They didn't, they, I mean, I always had a knack of healing pretty fast. Um, and I was begging them to let me play at the end of the year. Cause we we're in a playoff run um, to get, to get into the playoffs. And uh, I think uh, the doctors squashed that um, they're worried about some other things, but I, I, I was, I thought I was ready to go. And so after that, it was, uh, it was tough because then, you know, I had to be a little bit more patient that following off season, uh, you know, went and met with some teams and their doctors, of course, wanted to look at my leg and, um, you know, had some good options, but I just thought Columbus was going to be a good fit at the time.
0: And you wind up with 800 and some, I think 800 and some games in the league. And like you said, a couple, couple seasons there where you didn't play at all. So, I mean, you were you were knocking on the door of a of 1,000 games. You you, you had a, a, a pretty great run, but you also, you took your knocks, uh, as you've alluded to here in, in this time together, um, anything still lingering, you know, 10 years later, you, you, you mentioned the leg that the cheek cheekbones
1: are, yeah, no, the only, the only thing that bothers me moving forward is my left shoulder. I've had three surgeries on my left shoulder. I mean, I went through a 12 month stretch with the Islanders, you know, my carryover from Buffalo where, so at the end of my, uh, the year that I missed through contract dispute before I joined the Islanders, I had a soft tissue, re- uh, open procedure on my left shoulder, and I had my left cheekbone operated on. And then the following off season, because my shoulder redislocated, dislocated um, I had another procedure where they took bone from my hip and put it there, and I had my left ACL repaired. So within 12 months, I had four significant surgeries. And and there's no doubt that that, that took its toll on me mm-hmm. for like, I'd say 16 to 20 months afterwards, um, just for my body to go through that much trauma. Um, and then you know when I get to Toronto, that the leg break was was pretty severe. I mean, to, to be laying on the right side of my on the ice, it was my right leg, and then turning over to my left, and the bottom part of my left leg doesn't come over with it was, it was a really scary moment.
0: Um, last thing before we let you go, obviously, um, this gig here. What do you aspire to as far as the, the coaching? Do you want to be a head coach in the NHL at some point? Is 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 this uh, the development things? fine for you would you like to be an assistant an associate where is yeah
1: i think i mean i even look at my scenario here i think you know i i'm kind of development coach by name only i feel like i'm part of the coaching staff and involved in everything with the exception of being on the bench with these guys yeah. so i'm gaining so much experience from a, a phenomenal coaching staff from top to bottom um all four guys are incredible um we'll see you know i think uh i i think I'm more than able to learn and to grow and to be on a bench someday. Um, you know, but sometimes you find a, a perfect scenario and, you know, being an assistant is, is equally gratifying. You know, I think uh, sometimes you can aspire to be something and it may put you in the, in the wrong spot. Not that you don't want to aspire to yeah. it. Uh, sometimes being in, a, in an assistant role and with a great staff and a great organization uh, could be even more fulfilling.
0: Well, thanks, Michael. We really appreciate you taking the time here on a, on a nice day in Philadelphia. We can be out soaking up some sun and walking around, getting some fresh air. So uh, thanks for taking the time, and it's great to have you here in Washington.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.